When I grow up, I remember watching one of America's favorite television shows, The Beverly Hillbillies. Do you remember that? What a great show. Of course, um, the cast of characters included the patriarch of the family being Jed Clampett. And uh, Jed occupies the opening scene, I believe. He's got gun in hand, and he's out shooting for some food. But up from the ground came a bubble and crude, oil that is, black gold, Texas tea. Let's all stand and sing together. No, I'm just kidding. Down, 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 down. That would be a good Dennis Agajanian song. Then there was Jethro. He was the dumb guy. Jethro loved the cement pond, remember the swimming pool? And he never quite got um, urban Los Angeles, California living. He didn't, never quite made it there. And he, I remember the scene when he walks into a restaurant and orders an expensive meal, and it's probably over $100. He eats it, and then the waiter hands him a bill, which he had never seen before. And he said, what is this? And the guy says, well, it's, it's the check. And Jethro, being the hick that he was, looked at it and said, oh, no, I, I could never accept this check. You've already given me a free meal. I'm not going to take your money besides. And hands it back and walks out. I tried that. Then there was Granny. She was the cantankerous woman who kept everybody in line, but she could really cook up a mean possum stew, right? Then Ellie Mae. Ellie Mae was the gal who struck fear in people's hearts as she went to the kitchen to cook something because she couldn't cook. And nobody would want to eat her cooking except for Jed. Of course, Dad would eat anything. But uh, Ellie Mae... Um, uh, cooked biscuits one time, if I remember correctly, and she had all the ingredients except baking soda. So she adds the flour, and she adds the shortening, and she adds the milk and a pinch of salt, and everything's there except that baking powder, so the things don't rise. And they were hard as a rock. So you can have all of the right ingredients, but the missing ingredient makes the difference between biscuits and weapons. You could landscape your yard with her biscuits. At least around here they would. And so it is with Christians, with churches. You can have all the right ingredients seemingly, leadership, programs, activities, people, buildings. But if you don't have love, that's Paul's contention. That's the missing ingredient. That's the one thing that brings cohesion and meaning to the church. Lee Iacocca uh, once interviewed the famous football coach Vince Lombardi and asked him specifically, what makes a winning team? I want to read to you his answer. He said, there's a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals. They have plenty of discipline. They still don't win the game. There's another ingredient. If you're going to play together as a team, you've got to care for one another. You've got to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the next guy, saying to himself, if I don't block that man, then my guy is going to get his legs broken. I have to do my job well so that he can do his job. And Lombardi said, love makes the difference between mediocrity and greatness. It's the same way in a church. Love makes the difference between a mediocre church and a great one. It's the same in a marriage. Love makes the difference between a mediocre relationship 
and a great marriage. Corinth was a church growing at all of the elements, but they were turning out rocks rather than biscuits. There was a missing ingredient. In fact, Paul commended them at the beginning of his little letter, long letter actually, about all the things they had. He writes, chapter 1, He has enriched your church with the gifts of eloquence and every kind of knowledge. Now you have every spiritual gift you need. So they had it all, but according to chapter 13, the missing ingredient was agape, self-sacrificing, consistent, giving love. This morning we look at the first three verses. We look at it more in depth. Three points, three verses. The first three verses is a hypothetical case of some fellow, some person, it's written in the imaginary first person as if Paul is saying he had these, if he had them. A person who is extraordinary, incredibly gifted, could speak in at least two different types of tongues, had the gift of prophecy, had the ability to move mountains, he had great faith, he would even offer his body and endure persecution and martyrdom. He had all of that, but he lacked love. The missing ingredient is mentioned in that uh, phrase that is used three times, and have not love. If I have this, and have not love. If I have that, but have not love. If I can do this, but have not love. That's the missing ingredient. Let's take verse 1 and look at what is speech without love. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Speech, tongue, words without love. The Greek word for tongue or tongues is glossa. It's a very common word. It can mean either the organ of speech, like when you bite your tongue. Uh, It can mean your language that you were born with, your mother tongue. But in context, here it means a spiritual gift. He's speaking about the ability to speak with other tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues. Which, Which, by the way, the church at Corinth was so fascinated with this gift, and I'll tell you why in a moment. They just loved the possibility of being able to speak in unknown tongues. They were so fascinated with it, they abused it, and it became controversial. And guess what? It still is. In fact, I have a book on the subject of spiritual gifts by George Malone, and he calls the chapter on speaking in tongues the biggest friendship and oneness buster of the century. Churches divide over it. Groups split over it. Every time you talk about this concept, this idea, you can just sense backs straightening, necks stiffening, and even hearts hardening because of the the controversy. And it can be a point where there's no love over the issue. When I was a young Christian, I walked into a church... um, I visited this church on one occasion and they were doing something I had never seen. They were all standing up, uttering 
this mumbo jumbo, this gibberish, which was, I was told, speaking in tongues. They were all doing it at the same time. And it was, well, it was scary. I didn't know what they were doing. I thought they might jump on me or something after that. And I was brand new and, and I was the only one not doing it. I didn't know what it was. And the pastor noticed me there. And he walked up to me and he said very abruptly, are you a Christian? I go, yep. He said, well, you need to start speaking in tongues. And I think I said something like, you know, I was young and brash at the time. I don't recall you being the Holy Spirit. I don't think I'm going to do that. Now, it is controversial. And you don't have to be conned into it. You don't have to be taught how to do it. I know people who actually teach others how to do it. They teach people how to speak in tongues. And it's kind of hokey. They'll say things like, say hallelujah, hallelujah. Say it again, hallelujah, hallelujah. Say it faster, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You just start doing it so fast. That's right, you got it, that's it. Whatever. There were two kids, they were talking, they were at church, and one said, hey, how'd you get the Baptist kid to speak in tongues? The other kid said, it was real easy, I just kicked him real hard in the knee, you know, right at the shin. And he said, oh, my knee, oh, my shin, oh, my knee, oh, my shin, oh, my shin. That's it, brother, you got it, Hallelujah. Now, what is, what is this gift exactly? It is a means, according to Paul, to communicate with God directly from your spirit. Chapter 14, verse 2, Paul says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but he speaks to God. And then down in verse 14, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. It's a prayer language. It's not a communication device to people. It's a prayer language. And uh, what's a language? What is any language? Any language is a pact. It's a pact. It's an agreement whereby certain sounds mean certain things to certain people. You and I have a pact. It's called English. I can utter articulate sounds and you understand because we have an agreement as to what those sounds mean. But you don't have a pact with people from other countries. So that if somebody walks up to you and says, Kartawe stotram. You go, oh, because you don't have a pact with people in India. That means praise the Lord. Or if somebody comes up to you and says, maraming salamat po, unless you're from the Philippines or understand the language, you go, huh? Or if somebody walks up to you and says, mele kelikimaka amaka hikihoi, which is in Hawaiian, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. (laughs) Unless you have a pact with them, It's not understandable. It's not edifying. But because language is a pact, you and I could make up our own. If we decided to, we could have a little pact going so that if we're all together, only you and I would know that pact. So let's say before we all meet together as a church, we talk to each other and I say, tell you what, when I see you and I say the words, huzza, wuzza, jazza, wazza, that will mean... After church is over, we'll meet at Starbucks. <laughs> go, okay, great. And then I say, and if I say that to you, then you can say, Surface Murphys Calorex Flex, which means they'll see you there in 10 minutes and I'm buying. That's what it means. <laughs> so we could be fellowshipping together, speaking our packed language, which is English. And then suddenly I say, 
Huzza wuzza, jazza waz. Waza, surface murfus, calorex flex. And people go, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> we know exactly what we're doing, right? Well, according to Paul, there was that ability that God gave believers whereby they could speak, communicate directly to God. And the pact was, I speak it and God understands it. It's prayer language. Here was the problem. Though Paul insisted that primarily it was a prayer language used in private devotions, the Corinthians loved the idea of doing it publicly. And you know why? Because they figured out that if they speak in tongues publicly, it will draw attention to themselves. They're suddenly on stage. They stand up and say, Huzza wuzza, jazza wazza, or whatever. And everybody looks at them and goes, What? So they're suddenly thrust in the limelight. Everybody looks at them. And Paul is saying, that's not loving. To stand up and draw attention in a worship service to yourself because nobody can understand what you're saying unless there's an interpreter. There's no love. So if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, it's nothing. That's one possibility. There's also the possibility that Paul is simply speaking of exalted speech. If you have exalted speech but no love, it's zero. Because he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, what do angels speak like? Do they speak angelese, some special kind of language among themselves? They might. We don't know. I know one thing. They eat angel food cake. That I know is true. (laughs) They watch Touched by an Angel. That's their favorite show. But we know that in the Bible, whenever angels spoke to people, they spoke in the receptor language of the people. So Paul could simply be saying this, even though I am so eloquent that I have mastered human language and I have the excellence of speech and the golden oratory of angelic beings, if I don't have love present, so what? It's only a racket. I want to read something to you. It's by a professor of political science from Oxford, Ohio. And he writes about professors as a professor. He says, college professors may talk endlessly and learnedly about social reforms. Yet for all but a very, very few, I believe the only part of their lives that really make much difference to the real lives of others is the way they treat their wives or husbands, their children, their neighbors, their students in and out of class. And the general moral example that they set the world would probably not be one whit the worse if 95% of all the books and learned articles were never written and most lectures never delivered. Think of the eloquent speech of songwriters, all the love songs that have been written, where somebody is so gifted with language and they can set music to language and it's so beautiful and memorable. But what are the private lives of those songwriters and musicians like? They sing about love, but it's just words. So what? Like the Beatles, all you need is love. And they broke up and sued each other. And John left his wife and abandoned his son. So what? Or think of all the sermons preached by preachers who weren't caring for their wives. It's just speech. See, you can talk all about loving mankind and put nice little bumper stickers, visualize world peace. That sounds all really great. But how are you treating your family? That's what I want to know. 
You may remember that Peanuts cartoon where Lucy and Linus are having a little conversation. And Linus announces to Lucy that he's going to be a doctor when he grows up. And she said, you, a doctor? You don't even love mankind. And he was incensed. He said, I love mankind. It's just people I can't stand. It's easy to talk about loving men in general, but how do you love people that are next to you? If you say the greatest things, but you don't have love, he says, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You know what he's referring to? Pagan worship. In Corinth, there was the temple of Sybil, Bacchus, and Dionysus. And the way the pagans worshipped was by all uttering ecstatic noises while gongs and trumpets were blaring and cymbals were crashing. And Paul says, you can say all the great things in the world, but you don't have love. It's no different than pagan worship. Strong words. Second verse. This isn't speech without love. This is sensation without love. Paul says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Sounds like a pretty impressive person can do all that. Do you know anybody like this? I don't. I know people who think they know everything, but... But what an impressive, talented, gifted person. Notice the description. Though I have the gift of prophecy. Now in chapter 14 of this book, Paul says, prophecy is a better gift in the assembly than tongues because people can understand you. And prophets were regarded as being very important people. It was a sensation to be able to hear a message from God and then to give the message to people for God. Sensational. But Paul's point is, if you're a spokesperson for God, of all people on earth, you ought to have love. Because you're representing the God of love. In the Bible, there's a couple examples of prophets without love and some with love. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. You'll find his story in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. You don't have to read it quickly. Just believe it's there and read it later. Balaam was a prophet. But he had no love. He loved money. He wanted to get the money that Balak was offering him. And so he tried to curse the children of Israel, but he couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him. He knew the word of God. He, he knew that if he, if, he cursed these, that if he blessed these people, that would work because God had favor upon them, but he couldn't curse them. So what he said to the king of Moab is this. I can't curse them. God won't let me. But I'll tell you what you can do. Because God favors these people and is jealous over these people. If you get them to commit adultery and immorality and idolatry through your worship system, God himself will have to judge them. So here was a prophet without any love. He didn't love God. He didn't love God's people. He loved himself. Now contrast Balaam with another prophet, Jeremiah. Now there's a guy with love. Because he would speak to the people God's message, and as he'd do it, he'd weep. He would mingle his words with tears. His heart was broken because he watched his people turn from God. And this is what Jeremiah said. My grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. I weep for the hurt of my people. I am stunned and silent. I am mute with grief. Oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears. I would weep forever. 
I would sob day and night for all of my people who have been slaughtered. What a difference, huh? Here's a guy who spoke God's word, but with such a heart of love. And people knew it. The uh, church historian Tertullian said that Roman spies were often sent into congregations. One spy that went into a congregation to find out what they were up to said that these Christians always speak about a guy named Jesus who's never there, but they seem to act like he's there. This is an outsider speaking of him. And the spy said, and my how they love him, and my how they love one another. A spy said that. What would a spy say about us? John the Apostle was often called the Apostle of Love because he wrote so much about it. Tradition says that when John got to be very, very old and couldn't walk, he had to be carried. And he was carried from congregation to congregation. And and people would, would gather early with anticipation. After all, this was like Jesus' best friend. He witnessed the resurrection. He was this spiritual author, this great man, an apostle. And they couldn't wait. They, they, with rapt attention, anticipated his message. But at that stage in his life, he gave a very short message. Five words. He would go to the congregations. They would carry him in and he would lift up his hand and say, Little children, love one another. They waited for more. There was no more. That was the sermon. Well, some of the Christians were confused by this and even a little bit miffed. They were saying things to each other and thinking, I came early for that. This great apostle John, that's all he can come up with? This is kid stuff. Love one another. Heard it a million times. One of them spoke up and said, Excuse me, John, but you being a great apostle and all, you know, we expected something a little bit deeper than just love one another. And John said to the young man, Young man, it is the Lord's command that you love one another. It doesn't get any deeper than that. That's the simplest command. Love one another. It's also the hardest one to do. Isn't it? Love one another. It's difficult. Somebody asked Jesus, What's the greatest commandment? He said, Love God and love each other. And as simple as that is, it's very difficult to do. But if you are a communicator of God's truth, whether you teach in a Sunday school class or a lay ministry of some kind, love must be preeminent because you represent a God of love. And whether it's in a Sunday school room or a pulpit, the pulpit isn't a platform for opinions. The pulpit isn't a platform to extract money from people. The pulpit is a platform to share the God of love. One person said, Speaking the truth is important, but speaking the truth in love is all important. For truth without love can become a bludgeon to beat the heart out of any church. The description continues. And though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. (laughs) That's a lot. All. How much do you know? Everything. What mysteries haven't you figured out? None. Now, a mystery in the New Testament meant something that was undisclosed in the Old Testament, 
but revealed in the New. Something that you now understand a truth in the New Testament and it all comes together for you. That's a mystery. But all knowledge, we live in the age of knowledge. You can fit more on a silicone chip. You can fit the entire library of, the, of Alexandria, the famed ancient library, on, on a silicone chip and you can scan it immediately. Every 60 seconds, 200 new typewritten pages are added to man's cumulative knowledge. 80% of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive right now. One Cambridge University research scientist said, surgeons will one day be able to attach artificial memory circuit chips to the live or the living circuits of your brain to augment memory. Now you're thinking, is that chip out yet? I could use it. But you know, there's some things I don't want to remember. But this whole love and pursuit of knowledge. Imagine if you knew the Bible so well that every mystery was unsolved. There were no mysteries. You saw it all clearly. No unanswered questions. You just knew everything. First of all, nobody would like you. Second, you'd have to fight pride, wouldn't you? It would be very difficult to be humble and loving if you knew it all. That's why people who think they know it all are generally unloving. Paul said in chapter 8, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So you can have all of that knowledge, but you don't have love. You've missed the most important ingredient. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Now Paul is not knocking faith. Paul wrote more about faith than anybody else. He isn't speaking about saving faith here. He's speaking about you're a Christian, you're already saved, and you have a confident expectation in God. You're the kind of a person who believes and expects God to do miraculous, wonderful things. He's probably talking about the gift of faith. It's a spiritual gift. And it was the same example Jesus used. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to the Sandia Mountains, I'm paraphrasing it, move to the west side. And nothing will be impossible to you. So both Jesus and Paul used hyperbole to speak of ever-growing, constantly increasing faith. If you have all of that faith, but again, you have not love. You know, most of us as believers would like more faith than we have. I think that's generally true. I I bet every now and then you even pray for faith. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling in this area. Give me more faith to trust you. There's a guy in the Bible who prayed for faith. His son was a demoniac, demon-possessed. And Jesus said, well, if you believe, nothing's impossible. And he said, Lord, I believe. But remember what else he said? Help my unbelief. We feel that way, don't we? I believe, but there's this part of me. Help my unbelief. But when was the last time you prayed for love? Lord, heal my unloving heart. Forgive my arrogant heart. Give me more love and more patience for people. Because you can have great spiritual faith and without love, again, the missing ingredient. You know who had faith in the Bible without love? Jonah. Remember Jonah's story, the prophet? Oh, he had great faith. Incredible faith. You see, Jonah knew, he believed, that if he preached God's message, people would get saved. He knew that. That's why he went the other direction. 
That's why when God said, Jonah, got a job for you. After all, you're a prophet, right? I want you to go to Nineveh. He went the other direction. He wanted to be a non-profit organization at that point. He, he, he was running from the Lord the other direction. And you know how the story goes. He's out in the ocean. A whale swallows him. And when he's at his lowest moment, really down in the mouth, he cries out. To... These are attention getters. These are ways to bring people back. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. He prays to God. He repents. And he goes to Nineveh. And remember what happened in Nineveh? They all repented. It was the greatest revival in history. It was such a great revival. And you would think that any prophet in his right prophetic mind would say, Thank you, Lord. This is exciting. Jonah got mad and pouted and cried out to God. And he said, he says, the Bible says he was angry. And he said, Oh, Lord God, this is exactly what I thought would happen. Because I know that you're gracious and you're merciful and you're forgiving and you'd forgive those people that I hate. And then he said, go ahead, God, just kill me. It's better for me to die than to live. If you're not going to kill them and I hate them, then just kill me. (laughs) Slap them. (laughs) There's a guy with great miraculous revival. Can you imagine anybody more unloving than that, that he hates people that much that he won't give God's word to them? He had faith, but he had no love. And you can have great faith. If you have no love, you're, you're like a nothing prophet like Jonah. Then the third example in the third verse is sacrifice without love. Paul continues and he says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Now remember, remember from our first study last week. Agape love means self-sacrificing love. You're willing to give. You're willing to sacrifice. You're willing to put yourself last. However, throughout history, different groups, Christian groups, cultic groups, have arisen that have emphasized self-deprivation, monasticism, living alone out in the middle of nowhere, um, suffering, giving up your possessions. Many times the real focus wasn't on God as much as on self. People will say, oh, you're so holy, you're so righteous, you've given up so much. Yes, I know. I have. My son. And you can be proud to be so humble. A motive of the heart. Ananias and Sapphira did that. They gave up their possessions. They said they did at least. So the people would think they were holy. And they didn't give it all up. They just wanted the notoriety. I remember when we first signed our first lease on a building in this town. And we couldn't afford the monthly payment for the lease. And the owner said, tell you what, I'll work you a deal. You give me what you can afford, and that'll be your monthly payment. And I said, really? Yep. And so I said, thank you, Lord. And I was about to sign the lease, and he leaned over the desk, and he said, not the Lord, this guy. He leaned over the desk, and he said, you know, the way I figure it is that this might be that extra push that I need on Judgment Day to get me into heaven. So I put the pen down. I said, we need to talk. (laughs) And I explained it doesn't work that way. Notice the next phrase, though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love. Is that possible? 
Could you go to the martyr's stake, to the fire, and say, I'm willing to die and not have any love? Well, you know, church history has some interesting stories about the persecution of the church when it got very intense that some believers actually sought martyrdom in order to become famous so that their names would be kept in the annals of church historians. A legacy. But here is God's mathematics. Great speech, great faith, beautiful eloquence, all knowledge minus love equals zero. That's God's math. It's a missing ingredient. Is it missing in your life? Is it missing in your marriage? Is it missing in your service toward people? Some people serve in the church so faithfully, then they complain. Nobody's doing it like I'm doing it. No love. There was a young man who sought the attraction of a young woman. He wrote her a love letter a day, but he never showed up, never came by. And uh, so here's this gal receiving six or seven love letters a week. But he never came by. So he increases his output to three in a 24-hour period. But he never came by. All total, she received over 700 love letters. But he never came by. And so she ended up marrying the mailman. Because he always came by. (laughs) What was the missing ingredient? Him. He wasn't there. His presence wasn't there. There was no real love. You can write nice little flowery things. The missing ingredient is being there. Real love. Now, this, uh, this little series that we're doing on this chapter 13 is the kind of series that forces us weekly to examine something very difficult to examine, and that's our motive. And listen, motives are very slippery things to examine because they're so deep and we justify so much. But to evaluate our motives takes real seeking of the Lord. I want to close with this. I think it will help evaluate. It's called I Wonder. It's written by Ruth Harms Calkin. This is what she says. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, week after week, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. That's down at the heart of motivation. But that one ingredient, that one single ingredient called love makes all the difference between biscuits and rocks. Something that is nourishing, life-giving, and something that nobody but Jed would eat. Let's pray. Lord, you know us so well. The things that our husbands, wives, children, parents don't still yet know about us, you know. You love, you forgive. But Lord, you're seeking growth. 
as Paul wrote this to a church that was gifted and growing and making an impact, we need to hear this message, Lord. And we evaluate ourselves in this motivation of love. We can have so much going for us, but if we lack love, we lack so much. Elevate us, Lord. Elevate our motives. Elevate our behavior to be like that of Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.